Great, well let me add my welcome. My name's John T. It's great to see you this afternoon. I'd love it if you could take a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we're going to read the next section of Genesis. I hope you're enjoying, if you've been here for the last few weeks, I hope you're enjoying our journey through Genesis. And there are extraordinary chapters of the Bible. And we're going to read from verse 4 to 17 today. So please follow as I, as I read it, and then we'll seek to unpack it together. Let's read. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. By the way, um, just before I carry on, that little phrase is really important. This is the account of. If you read through the whole book of Genesis, you get loads. That phrase comes up again and again. And it's that every time the writer of Genesis has a... Who I think is Moses. Every time Moses has a new section to start... He starts with this little phrase, this is the account of. Uh, And so you get it with um, Adam and then Terah and then a whole load of people. It's about eight times through the book. But the first story that God tells is the story of his world. The story of heaven and earth. God gets to tell the story. God writes the story, not us. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It rhymes through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, unlike other gold. I'm not sure bad gold. Most gold, it seems to me, is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Well, we're going to unpack this together, try and understand uh, what this has got to do with us and why this might be vaguely relevant. And I'm going to start in a slightly dangerous place um, with a Welsh word. Now, um, how many Welsh speakers have we got here today? I'm trying to be you know, very inclusive and welcoming. Ter- terrific. Just, t- just the one. <laughs> Eddie, this is for you. Um, the word, I've been practicing this all week, is, I'm going to get it wrong now, Hiraiath. Hiraiath. Or Hiraiath. I think it's probably better. <laughs> Thanks, Evan. Um, let me show you what it means. Actually, it's, it's, a, it's a very beautiful word. 
Now, someone was telling me about this word, and I can't remember who it was, but it's a very beautiful word. And it's, it's very difficult to translate into English. English doesn't have an equivalent word. When I show you what it is, you're going to go, that is a beautiful word. And I think Hirayath brilliantly sums up what Genesis 2 is in the Bible for. Here's the definition. Let me put it on the screen so you can see. Hirayath, a homesickness for a home to which you cannot return, a home which maybe never was, the nostalgia, the yearning, the grief for the lost places of your past. That's what Harayath means. I think the Welsh feel it very strongly because of their passion for Wales. They love their homeland, right? They have this massive yearning for home. That's what this word gets at. And what we have in Genesis chapter 2 is a home to which we cannot return. In fact, it's so distant that perhaps we even wonder whether it ever was. And yet there's a nostalgia. There's a yearning for something. A yearning for home. And it's weird because you feel it every time you walk into a garden. There's something about gardens that we love. What is it about gardens that so naturally clicks with who we are? Even if you don't like gardening, and let's face it, I don't, you still love gardens. There's something as you walk in that makes, it, it sort of evokes a memory of something lost. I think that's because of Genesis 2. I think it's because you were created for a garden. And every time you enter a garden, you say, I remember this. It evokes a memory, a nostalgia. And you know, I've been praying that as we study Genesis 2, it would create within us a deep sense of longing, yearning, a homesickness, even actually a sadness. Do you know, I want us to experience this afternoon the sadness of what has been lost. I've got two big points this afternoon. The first one's this, a heartache for the home that we've lost. Um, Later on in the Bible, in Psalm 137, there's a psalm which was made very popular by um, someone, Boney M, did a song. And, um, And the song says this, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept, right? It became very famous in popular culture. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. Why did they weep when they sat down by the rivers of Babylon? When we remembered Zion. Now that is God's people remembering their home. They've been taken out of their home. We'll get to that in a minute. But as they sat down by the rivers of Babylon, they sat down and they wept for what had been lost. You know, might it even be the case this afternoon that we would learn to weep over Eden. To feel so keenly what has been lost that we might even cry. That looking back to our first home, that we would see this world is not all it promises to be. 
that we would not be deceived and blinded by the small delights of this world, the temporary pleasures, the passing joys, the things that don't last, that we'd not fall into the trap of calling this world home. We need Genesis to show us what our home really is. But before we all get too depressed, my second point is good. Because my second point is that Genesis 2 would create within us not just a heartache for what's been lost, but a heart longing for the home that's in store. That's where we're heading this afternoon. That's what we're going to see. That's what Genesis 2 is going to show us. Now, let me show you why I'm using this language of home so much. Something very significant happens in Genesis 2. If you compare Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, something very, very significant changes. In some ways, it tells the same story. Genesis 1 tells the story of creation. Then Genesis 2, you get this kind of zoomed in on the garden, this one particular localized area, but there's something very big that changes that you might have missed. And it all is to do with what God is called. All the way through Genesis chapter 1, he's called God. In the beginning, God created. The Hebrew word for God in Genesis chapter 1 is Elohim. Elohim means the mighty maker of everything. Some of you were brought up with Mr. Maker. Who was brought up with Mr. Maker? Anyone here? Hardly any of you. Man, you're obviously older than I thought. Or younger. Ah, it's disturbing. Anyway, Mr. Maker was a kid, doesn't matter. It's completely irrelevant. Forget that. He was a kid's TV maker thing, right? Doesn't matter. Elohim is the mighty maker of everything. That was all that was. He's the mighty maker of everything, Elohim. Now, what happens in chapter 2, verse 4? Suddenly, you'll notice he's called when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. What's the change? We might say, well, who cares? What matters? Here's what matters. The word Lord, in capitals, is the Hebrew word Yahweh. So in chapter 1, it is Elohim, the creator of everything. But in chapter 2, it's Yahweh Elohim. You may say, who cares? Big deal. This is why it matters. Because if you were the first people reading this book... The word, the name Yahweh would be more precious to you than anything. In fact, so precious you wouldn't even dare to speak it or write it. So precious because that name is the covenant name, the relational name that God gives. When God's people say to him, hey, what should we, not hey. When God's people say to him, what should we call you? God says, call me Yahweh. That's my name. So this is how Genesis 1 and 2 go. Genesis 1 is, here is the mighty maker of everything. And by the way, Israel, that's Yahweh. That's your God. As you enter the land that's full of idols, you need to know that Elohim is Elohim Yahweh. He's your God. He's the God that you get to say, mine. And so all the way through chapter 2, you have this strong sense of the relationship between God and his people. This is a chapter about being at home with God, in relationship with him. So let's just run through some of the details. 
um, as we look at this home that's been lost and as we seek that God by his spirit would cause our hearts to ache for what has been lost. Can you see, first of all, the people that God formed? Let's get into the detail. We're told that the land is not yet fruitful. I think this is just talking about this one, uh, this, this particular area. It's difficult to fit exactly with how it goes with Genesis 1. It's, it's like a different perspective on Genesis chapter 1. It's telling the same creation story from a different angle so that we can understand the place of humanity. Look, it's not yet fruitful. No shrub had yet appeared. No plant had sprung up. The Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. There was no one to work the ground. The land, if it's going to be fruitful, it needs a worker and it needs water. God provides the water through the streams and then he makes the worker. But look how he makes. This is different to chapter 1. In chapter 1, he just spoke, let there be, let there be, let there be light, stars, sun, moon, let there be man and woman. In chapter 1, he just spoke, but in chapter 2, do you see we're showing something different? He forms the man from the dust of the ground. He takes some dust and he fashions it. He gets some dust and he fashions it into the shape of a man. Human beings are made of dust. I wonder how that strikes you. In fact, in, in Hebrew, and I, look, I don't know much Hebrew, but these are things that all the books say. The name man, literally Adam, means ground, land, dust. That's what he's called. So much his identity is tied with his, where he comes from. That people love to trace their family trees back, yes? We love to trace, you know, who do you think you are, blah, blah. You, you trace your family tree back and you say, oh, I've got this, I'm really proud of my heritage. You trace your family tree back front up, you know what you get? Dust. That was your great, 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 great ancestor, dust. That's where you came from. I wonder how you feel about that. It's a little bit humbling right? We're made of the same stuff as everything else. We're not that special. We're just made of dust. And there it is, a dusty sort of corpse lying on the floor. And yet, you see what God does next. Because now God, well look what it says, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Dust, yes, but dust that has had the very breath of God breathed into it. Do you not see the stunning reality of what the Bible teaches about who you are? You are dust, but you have the breath of God. On one hand, it humbles you. On the other hand, it could not lift you higher. Every breath you're breaking, breathe in now. Take a breath, take a deep breath that breath can be traced back to God. That's remarkable. You're dust and yet you breathe with God's breath. This is really important. The man did not choose to be made. He did not think himself into existence. He didn't just appear. He was handmade by God. Everyone loves stuff that's handmade. Even if it's rubbish. Someone makes you a Christmas present. You think that's rubbish. They say, well, I made it. And go, oh, that's really sweet. Thanks. It's really nice. It's really valuable. 
Handmade makes something precious. You don't just come off the production line. God handmade the human being. What a beautiful thing. So I wonder this afternoon, in what ways do you hide your dusty heritage and pretend to be something more than you are? Or in what ways do you hide your divine heritage and pretend to be something you're less than you are? Some of us, we're so full of ourselves, we think we're the best, we think we're awesome, we think the whole world is better because of us. You're dust. Some of us think that we kind of brought ourselves into being, we can create everything, we can do it. No, you're dust, that's all you are, you're just dust. But some of you feel worthless and useless and like you're nothing valuable at all. No, you breathe the breath of God. Infinitely precious. Genesis 2 is genius. So there's the people that God formed, but now look at the place that God prepared. The very first garden of verse 8, now the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden. God planted a garden. And there he put the man he'd formed, and he made this garden perfect for the man. It was kind of designed with the man in mind. When I was uh, about six years old, I think I was about six, I was very excited. I was playing in the garden and I found a stag beetle. It was about this big. And I was very excited about this stag beetle. And it seemed to me this stag beetle was doing okay, but it could do with a home. So I spent a very long time building a home for a stag beetle. I didn't even know its name. I just, I felt like it was a kind thing to do. I spent a long time building it. And I built the home specifically designed for the beetle. Right? It was the dimensions, everything, it was beetle-shaped. It had various rooms. You know, it could move from room to room. There was, I put a little pool, a swimming pool in one room. It was nice. There was a room with food in it. I just thought, this is terrific. If I was a beetle, I would love this. So here's the beetle in its home. It was made for the beetle. I left the beetle in overnight. I came back in the morning to see how the beetle was, to check he was happy, and he'd gone. (laughs) Ungrateful wretch. (laughs) But God makes a garden specifically for the people. He designs it that way. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. A planted garden with trees. He made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. God didn't just make one tree. Then he goes, just tree, fine, have a tree. He made all sorts of trees and all sorts of fruit. And it looked good and it tasted good. It was a beautiful place to live. A wonderful place. And right in the middle of the garden were these two special trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll get to those in a second. But they're there, right in the middle. And so you have this garden, and the garden is planted in Eden. And then look, from verse 10, you see there's the river. Right? What's the river doing? It's doing what rivers do best. It's watering the garden and flowing from Eden. So you've got to picture this, right? Here's the way God set everything up. He said, I'm going to make a garden in this place called Eden. That's an area. 
Eden means delight. So you've got a garden in a place called Eden, then a river flowing from there outwards. That's how God designed the world. And right there, in this river, as it flows out, you discover that the garden was never supposed to be just a garden. It was never supposed to be a garden where everything flowed in. It was never supposed to be the place where all the blessing flowed in. It was supposed to be the place where blessing flowed out. It was never supposed to be the place where we grabbed as much stuff as we could get and brought it back to the garden. It was the place where from there the blessing was to go out. Where? Well, it spread into these four rivers. And from there it spread out to water the whole of the earth. And there's gold. And there's stuff that smells nice. And all over the place there's this river. So you have the people that God formed and the place that God prepared. He prepared it specially for them. Like I say, I think this is why we love gardens. And I want you to imagine, can you imagine just wandering around the garden, the beauty, the peace, the security, the everything's there for you. It's beautiful. This is what's been lost. And then thirdly, I want to show you the freedom that God gave. Oops. The freedom that God gave. So now look at verse 15. So we've seen God makes the man, he places him in the garden. Now look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. You may say to me, that's not freedom. You've misunderstood, that's not freedom. That sounds like work. No, no, in Genesis chapter 2, when God gives the people work to do, that's the freedom. He says, I have a work for you to do. There's something good for you to do. Work is not a slavery and a burden. I know it is now, but it was never that way at home. In our first home in the garden, work was a joy. Work was to... How was the ground going to produce fruit unless the... Humanity worked the ground and and created and brought more out of the ground. Work is not a slavery and a judgery, but at home in the garden, work was a delight. And then we're told, in verse 16, God gives them a command. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And you say to me, there you go, that's not freedom. Work isn't freedom, and commands aren't freedom. That's not freedom, John, so you've got that wrong as well. No, that is freedom. Listen to the command again. You are free. That's God's command. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Anything. You're free. And then he says, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You say, okay, that's not freedom then, because God puts a tree there and then tells them they can't eat it. No, that is the essence of freedom. In order to be free, you have to have a choice. In order to be free, you have to choose. God could have created the garden as a prison and made it nice. And just said, look, just... You can eat from any tree you like. Just have a go for it. Go for it. Have a nice time. 
But instead God says, no, I want you to be free. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but not this one. And every single day, Adam, as you walk past this tree, you will exert your freedom by saying no to that and by choosing to obey me. That's freedom. You know, often people say, well, why did God even put the tree in the garden? Why didn't he just... Because he wanted you to be free. He wanted you to choose. Choose life. Every day, two trees, Adam stood before them and was like, okay, which one shall I choose today? Every day, Adam, choose life. Choose life. Choose life. Eat from the tree of life. That was the point. Every day, Adam was to express his freedom by choosing life. Now, just as an aside, because there'll be some people who are going, yeah, but what about a load of other stuff? There's a load of other stuff. I know that. Right? There's a load of other stuff about God's control and about God's sovereignty. Did God know what Adam was going to do? Yes, he did. How does that work? Haven't got time. But God is big. And don't you ever believe that you don't have a choice. You do. You choose. You choose every day. Every day you choose. Because God has granted you the freedom to choose. And if you had no freedom to choose, then you would be a slave and you would not be free. So God puts the tree in the garden. Now, here is the beauty of the home that God created for us. And in some ways I just feel like, oh, I'm standing here. and I, It's so frustrating sometimes preaching. Because you can't... Ah! If I could just take you there and show you, you'd say, wow. And I don't have the words to be able to articulate it. Fortunately, I do have a picture though. So this is going to help. This is a picture, a genuinely a photo of the tree of life. Okay? Here it is. That genuinely is the tree of life. Does anyone know what that is? Yes. Who said that? Yes. This is the tree of life that stands in the middle of animal kingdom in Walt Disney World in Florida. Which is helpful of them. I don't know how they'd have reached the fruit myself. I think it would have been smaller than that. Now listen, here's the, oops, here's the ridiculous irony of humanity. That we think we can build ourselves a tree of life. This isn't, right? This, they call this the tree of life. It's dead. It's not growing. It's made of like metal and like stuff. You can see how it's built. It's dead. And yet we build it and we go, oh, it's the tree of life. And yet this is what humanity has done all the time. Rather than enjoy the beautiful home that God gave, we're going to see in a couple of weeks, I don't want to spoil it, but you probably know the story. Humanity, rather than choosing to obey God, they chose instead to go their own way. And ever since that day, we've been trying to build a garden. We've been trying to make a tree of life. We've been trying to find a home. We're homesick. And we're desperate to find somewhere that we call home. When I was researching that 
Hiraiath word. I found a, um, there was a poem about it, and then at the bottom there was a comment section, and there was this one comment, and it, I don't know, it was just, it really moved me as I read it. It just said, I'm terrified that I might never find a home. Isn't that heartbreaking? And I read it thinking that's because we all long for that. We crave it. We crave a home. But the reality is that the home in Genesis 2 is a home that we've lost and a home that our hearts should ache for. But I do want you to see that although our hearts ache for a home that was lost, our hearts can long for a home that's in store. Can you turn um, in, in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 30? Deuteronomy chapter 30, it's page 208. Okay, uh, page 209, uh, from verse 19, it's actually on page 209. Page 19, look, look what it says. This will, this will be familiar if you were here a few weeks ago. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you. This is Moses talking to God's people that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, choose life so that you and your children may live and that that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You see, at this point, when they receive the book of Genesis, they're about to do what? Enter the land. They're about to go home. They're about to be taken into the land that God has promised. That is, they're going to be taken home again. To live in a place where they'll be secure and a place of blessing and a place of beauty and a place of freedom. They'll be living in that place with God as their king. That's what God's promised. And so as they read of Genesis 2, yes, they ache for what was lost, but they're looking forward to the land that they're heading for. But as you read on through the pages of the Old Testament, they do go into the land, they end up in the land, and then they mess it up again. And they get thrown out again. And they end up again, far away from the land. And by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept as we remembered Zion. I'm homesick again. I just want to be home. And then onto the pages of human history walks Jesus. And Jesus says these extraordinary words. Listen to this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be with me where I am. Do you not see what Jesus promised? 
Jesus walked onto the pages of human history and said, I'll take you home. I'll take you home. I'll prepare a place for you. And when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place, do you know where he was going? Do you know what he was going to do the next day? We tend to imagine that he, when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he's like, I'll oh, just toot off to heaven and make you a nice house. No, that's not where he was going. He was going to a cross. How does God prepare a place for you? By sending his son to die on a cross. And so now Jesus dies on a cross and as he goes to a cross, he goes to prepare a place for you at home with his father. And then in John chapter 20, when Jesus rose from the dead, oh, let's turn to it because it's cool. Have a look at John chapter 20. It's on page 1089. John chapter 20. Have a look at verse 21. Jesus has been to the cross. He's died on the cross. He's risen again. He's speaking to his disciples. And look what he says in verse 21. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. Ring any bells? Here is the creator, once again, breathing life. Here is the one who has the power to take what is far away and dead and breathe life and make it live. To take dry bones and breathe the spirit of God to make them live, to bring life. The breath of God brings Life, it forms a people and what Jesus is doing today is creating a people, a vast army. He is breathing life into millions and millions of people around our world and a vast army of dry bones is standing on its feet to be an army that looks to Jesus and lives. It's what he's doing today. He's giving life for people formed by Jesus, by his powerful breath. He's preparing a place and one day his perfect people will be planted in his perfect place that he has formed. A garden with the tree of life and the river of life. This is what Revelation 22 says is ahead of us. Go home. Back to the garden. And live. And do you remember? Remember which way the river flowed? It flowed out. And if we're going to be part of this people that Jesus has formed, if we're going to be part of this people who are heading for this new city, can I suggest that we are a people who are passionate about seeing the river flow outwards? that we don't spend the rest of our lives trying to get the river to flow towards us. That we don't spend the rest of our lives trying to get as much stuff as we can, trying to fill our bank balances and our lives and our, with as much stuff as we can, but instead that flows out, 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 away. 
that Globe Church doesn't become a church that we just build and bigger and bigger as people flow, 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 but that we send people out and drive people out to the ends of the earth. It was always the original intention of God's plan. So this afternoon as we land this, as we bring all this to, 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 the, to an end, let me ask you this. Have you settled here? Are you someone who's sitting here going, actually I quite like my life. I'm quite happy. Having a nice time, enjoying stuff. Life's alright. I want to say with all I can, please wake up. This world is not your home. This world will not satisfy, it will never satisfy you. You were created for more. Don't settle for this. You were created for more. Lift your eyes to Jesus and pursue more. And if you know this world is rubbish and if you know this world is not your home, well, this is great news. There is a home that Jesus has prepared for you by his death on the cross. He's breathed his life into you and he will take you home to be with him forever. That's what we live for. Why don't we pray and then we're going to sing and think about how we can begin to live this out. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the home that we read of in Genesis 2, for the people that you formed, for the place that you prepared, for the freedom that you gave. And Father, we, our hearts ache, our hearts break over what has been lost, over the mess of, that our world is in, over how far we've come from what you first made. But our hearts do long for what you are doing. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are forming a people, breathing life into a dead people to make us live. You are preparing a place for us. You have given us freedom. And we pray that we would choose life. Every day we choose life. We choose Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.